we'll see how I hold this morning. My, uh, my music teacher, my piano teacher on Wednesday, uh, my piano last teacher on Wednesday after I had a cold, and now she gave it to me. First, only give me piano lessons. I got a bonus, and she didn't charge me extra for it. <coughs> so let's see how we do this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the book of Acts. Lord, help us this morning. As we continue our study in, in the book of Acts, I pray that you will help us to comprehend what you are desiring of us to comprehend. I pray that you will help us to look at the final conclusion of Stephen's life here in Acts chapter 7 as not really so much a story about Stephen, but a story about what loving you looks like. And so, Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to see. Captivate us with your Son. Captivate us with your Son in light of the truth you reveal about your Son. So glorify yourself in, in this time. In your name I pray. Amen. So if you have your scriptures, you can turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the last few verses of the chapter, starting in verse 54. And we're going to run all the way through to the end, verse 60. This morning, I know last week we covered a very large chunk. In fact, we covered 53 verses if you weren't here. Um, we are not going to revisit much of that text. If you are not here last week, I'd encourage you to hear the message. Or at least read the text. But we come to the final conclusion of the story with Stephen, that is. It's the conclusion of Stephen's story, but it's the beginning of Saul's story. And we'll see that Saul is introduced, as Luke so often does, when he, when he has a character that shows up in the storyline, he introduces him briefly first, and then he expands on the understanding. Today we just find the introduction of this young man, Saul. But that's not the focus of the text. Let's look at it, and then we can unpack it. Starting in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground the teeth at him, and full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses were laid down, or I'm sorry, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. A lot of things can be said in, the, in these short verses, this short section of verses. And we're going to try to identify all of them. I'll be in danger, as Rusty and I have talked today, of, of chasing rabbit trails. Uh, we're going to try not to. Uh, but if I could just give you a central thesis of this study, these last few verses of the book of uh, Acts chapter 7, it is this. Acts chapter 7 is a study in contrasts. In fact, it's one of the more striking contrasts in the scriptures you will find. There's a lot, you know, if you've been around me long enough, you know I, I've always talked about contrasts in the scripture. Because God does that over and over and over again. Establishes contrasts. You have an establishment of 
Dramatic contrasts in this text. Multi-layered contrasts. And we're going to try to see them this morning as we work our way through. There's also some other pieces and bits and pieces in the text that we want to recognize as well that will enhance our understanding of the text. I know we know the text. I know we know the story. We know the conclusion of the story. This section probably better than the rest of it. But even so, I think there's a lot we can uh, gather or glean out of the text. Starting at verse 54 again. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I want to stop on that verse, verse 54, for a second, and jump over at the same time, verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice. So in verse 54, we have the statement, and when they heard these things, they were what? Enraged or furious, right? In verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Interesting statement about, about <coughs> people. And by the way, just by background, what do we have? What group of people do we have here? We have two groups of people. Now there may be a smattering of others in here. We have two groups of people that are being described in, 50, in, um, sorry, in verse 54 and verse 57. The two groups of people, actually three groups of people, with the one group, the second group is kind of small, so I said only two, but there's really three. The first group, which is probably a pretty sizable group, would be the Hellenized Jews, right? The Hellenistic Jews that we talked about all the way back in the beginning of chapter 6. The Hellenized Jews, okay? The second major group would be Sanhedrin. the Sanhedrin or the council. And then there's a third group, we don't know how big they are, but they certainly aren't on center stage. And that is the group that the Hellenized Jews instigated. Remember that? The Hellenized Jews instigated in order to get the council involved in the whole process. I didn't say this before, but mo when we were studying that section, but most likely, if the Hellenized Jews had gone to the Sanhedrin themselves, that the Sanhedrin would have probably said to them, well, you know what, if you're going to dance, you've got to pay the band. Right? Because the Hellenized Jews were claiming to be believers. Well, if you're going to dance, you've got to pay the band. But instead, what they did is they incited Jews who were not Christians to get all worked up over it. And then those Jews who are not Christians went and told the council, so the council then got involved. So you have those three groups of people. We don't know how big the group were that got 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 uh, riled up by the Hellenized Jews. But there were sort of three groups here. But the two primary ones that are front and center in the whole discussion, the whole storyline, it's only really one verse that the, the ones that got incited show up. Everything else is all about the Hellenized Jews and the Sanhedrin, or the council. So those are the two major groups, and we see them continuing here. So when you see in verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. You've got to understand, it's probably all three groups, but primarily, Luke is focusing in on the Sanhedrin and the Hellenized Jews, because that's been the focus all along, those two groups. So primarily, that's it. I would suspect that along with them is the ones that were instigated. But these are the two major groups. They're enraged, and they're crying out with a loud voice. 
Now, it's interesting when we look at verse 54 and verse 57, you see, first of all, they're enraged. So that means basically their anger is what? It's out of control, right? But what's interesting is verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice. That statement, Luke singles out very specific, and he's very specific in his choice of words here. He is very specific. This, these words are used in a variety of places before as well as after this text in the book of Acts. Okay, but guess where the first word is? Where the first time it shows up? Cross. No, in the book of Acts. Okay, but guess where the, the statement they cried out comes in first in the book of Acts? No. Nope. First time. Guess where the first time is? When the Hellenized Jews were complaining about the widow. No. It's Acts chapter 2. Okay, I think what's in Acts chapter 2 where someone cries out? Yes. Yes. When they cry out, what do we need to do to be saved? Luke, there's many different ways Luke could have presented this idea. In the Greek, he chooses the exact same verbiage. And it's striking when you see it. He does it about three or four more times throughout the book of, of Acts. He does it again and again and again. And it's interesting. Some of the times, it is crying out for salvation. And other times, it's crying out against. But the wordage is the same. The verbiage is the same. What is Luke doing with this? Especially considering there are a variety of ways to say it, and he chose specifically to use them the same way for totally different opposite points. Can I just submit to you real quick what I think is going on here? What do we see? We see on the one hand, the gospel is being preached, correct? Acts chapter 2. And how do they respond? They cry out for salvation. They cry out for salvation. Here, what do we have? We have Stephen preaching the gospel. The same gospel. As a matter of fact, it's not even just the same gospel. It's just it's it's much more targeted, isn't it? But did not Peter say this same Jesus that you crucified? Isn't that what he said? Didn't Stephen just say the same thing? Now, he added in all the, all the prophets, too, didn't he? Mm -hmm. He threw all the prophets in there, but he also said, Jesus, who you crucified. On the one hand, we have Acts chapter 2, what must we do to be saved? By the way, the jailer cries out the same thing, right? And Luke uses the same words. And here, with the people saying, words being said that they cried out but instead they're crying out what? In an enraged position, not a broken position, right? They're not in a broken condition. They're in an absolutely rebellious, enraged, and hardened condition, aren't they? And by the way, that last word I used is the important one, hardened. Condition. In a broken condition, heart. Acts chapter 2, and then of course the jailer. For two examples. Here we have heart, but it's not a broken heart, is it? Stony hearts. 
And they cry out what? Throw him out of the city. Let's go stone him. You know what they cry out? I mean, we know the story, don't we? What's the difference between the two groups? What's the difference? They're both both groups are Jews, right? Both both groups knew about Jesus, didn't they? Both groups were involved in his crucifixion, weren't they? Both groups knew about his resurrection, didn't they? What's the difference? What's the difference? Can I submit to you what the difference is? Luke is trying to show us something that, even though everything about the storyline is the same, isn't it? Everything about the storyline is exactly the same. You know what the one difference is? The Holy Spirit. It's the only difference. It's the same gospel. It's the same storyline. It's the same type of people. It's the same background. It's the same everything. But in one group, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit moves in their hearts and changes them, doesn't he? And gives them receptive, soft, fleshy hearts, doesn't he? And in one group, he doesn't. In this group, he doesn't. In this group, he doesn't move in their heart at all, does he? Is there any evidence of the spirits at work in these people's hearts? <laughs> What's that? A different spirit, but certainly not the Holy Spirit. It's a striking difference. Now, I don't want to spend too much on this, but too much time on this, but it is interesting. Same background, same storyline, same gospel, same everything. And yet you have to come away from the storyline looking at this and saying, this is the spirit work. Isn't it? This is a spirit work. The thing we're talking about, the gospel, the salvation, is spirit. It is done by the Holy Spirit. Everything's the same. But universally, in this case, although they still cry out, they cry out in anger and in enragement because the Holy Spirit's not even working them. This folds back all the way. You're going to say something. Sounds like they're, so it reminds me of when they were crying out, crucify him to back Christ. It's the whole group. Exactly right. the same thing. The other thing I want to point out with this part we're talking about right here is um, on the one hand we have the previous group and here we have this. Um, boy, my mind. You ever have, a, have just everything go south on you? I can't remember what the other thing was I wanted to point out. It just disappeared on me. It's part of verse 57. Um, Oh, I remember what I was saying. Thank you. See, thank you, Lord. Um, remember when we were back in the Gospels and we talked about coming in contact with Jesus? What? It demands a response. Remember that? When you come in contact with Jesus, it demands a response. You cannot come away unchanged. Remember we talked about that? How many times did we talk about that? Ad nauseum almost, right? It really wasn't because you never get enough, right? But you get my point. We talked about it a lot. Here we have this amazing picture, this amazing example, both in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter, end of Acts chapter 7. You have one group of people, they come in contact with Jesus by the Spirit and they cry out, What must we do to be saved? 
In Acts chapter 7, they come in contact with Jesus, and without the Spirit, they don't go away indifferent, do they? Right? Do they go away indifferent here? They weren't enraged before this, were they? There's no evidence they're enraged. But when Stephen says what he says, they become enraged. And they continue to be enraged. And by the way, you don't get that. It's very purposeful that Luke introduces Saul to us, because you know he's enraged, isn't he? We know the storyline. Until, until when? Chapter 9. When he what? When he comes in contact with Jesus and the Spirit opens his eyes to see. His spiritual eyes. Although he blinds him physically, he opens his spiritual eyes to see. And when he does, he cries out. You get the point, right? You can't come away from being in contact with Jesus being unchanged. It's the biggest thing that I think is troubling about the, the one, at least one of the biggest things is troubling about the non-persecuted church world today is how we can be supposedly in contact with Jesus and be unchanged by it. That's not accepted in the scriptures. It is forever presented in the scriptures. You come in contact with the Redeemer. You come in contact with the Messiah. You come in contact with Jesus. And you come away changed. And continuing to change. That's exactly what happens. That's what we see here. With that in mind, going back to verse 54 again. Now when they heard these things, all the things that we talked about last week, when they heard these things, they're enraged. And how enraged were they? They ground their teeth at him. I don't know you, but I've never been that enraged. I don't think. Grinding their teeth. The picture is their teeth are, their jaw is clenched as tight as it possibly could be. And you're like, they are ticked. You get the sense? I don't even know how else to describe it. The picture is dramatic. But remember I said it's a study of contrasts? Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, does what? He gazes. Is his jaw, are his jaws clenched? No. No. Is he enraged? No. Is he getting all argumentative? Is he getting up in their face? No. No. Not at all. But he... Full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is not the intro of him being full of the Holy Spirit, is it? When, 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 when was he described as being full of the Holy Spirit? When he's chosen. So this is this is an ongoing thing. And by the way, that's argued in the scriptures. It's an ongoing thing. This is not at the moment in time you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit's work in him. It's power. I hear people say sometimes that when, when the moment of need is there, then the Spirit will come on you with power. No, He's already on you with power. It's just that sometimes special events take place and it's superpower, if I put it that way. I don't mean that in a silly way. You get my point. It's not no power and power. It's power and then power to handle the situation. 
He's already full of power of the Holy Spirit. He's full of spirit, full of power. And so he says here, he's described, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven. Now, a lot of people have argued back and forth what this could possibly be, be about, because nobody else saw it. There's no description of scripture that everybody else in this section that anybody else saw that, right? So there's a lot of argument about what that, what that possibly could be. Do you see something physically? Or is it just spiritual? I don't know. Don't know. I do know there are times when um, words are being spoken from heaven and somebody hears but nobody else does, right? Like Saul on the road to Damascus. Here are the words, everybody else just heard a rumble. So who knows what it means? And it doesn't matter ultimately. It says that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. So whether it was supernaturally, as in with his heart he saw it, or with his eyes he actually was able to gaze that. We don't know. It doesn't matter. He gazed into heaven and he saw what? The glory of God. That is referring to the Father. He gazed into heaven and he saw something. He got a glimpse into something he'd never seen before. Whether it's from the eyes of his heart or physically, he saw something he never saw before. And by the way, my inclination is he saw it physically because it says he's gazing up into heaven, which means he's looking upwards. My, my suspicion is he's actually seeing this. <clears throat> Whether it's a vision or whatever. And he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees his Redeemer. And he's emboldened. Could I use the term? He's enraptured. Isn't he? Everybody around him is hating him. They're screaming at him. They're gnashing their teeth. <coughs> grinding their, their teeth. They are as angry as they possibly can be. And he looks into heaven and sees the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then, if that's not enough, in his enraptured state, he speaks to these enraged people. Can I just pause this for a second before we get into what he says? Do you think that's boldness? Do you think we have a good picture of boldness here? What do you think? Nobody, only one person, thank you very much, Nikki. Only one person is agreeing with me so far. Thank you, two people. Uh, do you get the picture of his boldness here? Even before we get into the actual words? <coughs> yeah, look at his boldness, but not because of his own boldness. No, it's, it's Holy Spirit boldness. Absolutely. It's Holy Spirit boldness. There's no Holy Spirit timidity here, is there? It is absolute Holy Spirit driven, Holy Spirit empowered boldness. And can I just submit this to you? That's what Holy Spirit power looks like. So it does. That's what it looks like. It, it is. We can't miss this. Because here's what we want to do. We want to isolate this verse. What happens next, verse 56, we want to isolate it to the uniqueness of Stephen and say, whoa, that was amazing. No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. What happens in verse 56 when Stephen speaks up in the midst of a mob of people who clearly want him dead. And he speaks up to them and says something that will get him dead. Right? 
It will kill him. And he opens his mouth. And if you can picture it, they're enraged, which means they're yelling at the same time that they're clenching their teeth. This Stephen doesn't, he's not saying, um, I see God. Is he? This is a loud, raucous occasion, isn't it? It's a cacophony of noise, of shouts. And in the midst of that, Stephen looks up into heaven, and then, I would argue, he screams it out so people hear it. His boldness. Thank you, Tom. Holy Spirit boldness. What does he say? Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Woohoo! Now, this passage, verse 56, is a lot more potent than you think it is. Because what Stephen just did in this short verse, when he said, The heavens, I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's several things Stephen just said. First of all, he's referencing the book of Daniel, chapter 7. He's referencing Psalm 110. He's also referencing some things that Jesus said. But you see, in Psalm 110 and in Daniel, chapter 7, there are several things that are stated by Daniel and by the psalmist. And the couple things that are stated is basically about the coming Messiah. That he is going to rule. And he's going to judge. And the Messiah is the Son of God. Now, Stephen uses the term Son of Man, doesn't he? It's the exact same term that is first introduced in Psalm 110. And Jesus references himself as the Son of Man repeatedly. This is the only place, or at least the last place, in the New Testament where the Son of Man term is mentioned. For the most part, Jesus uses that term over and over and over again, although it shows up in the Old Testament. What does the term Son of Man mean? Well, Son of Man means that he is a couple things. Number one, Messiah. Okay, because he's going to come and become a man. Son of man, Messiah. But it also has a very strong um, eschatological term or end times idea to it. Because son of man also refers to judgment. <coughs> which folds us into the Gospels. Because Jesus said to the people who were being rebellious, including the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin, he said to them, the next time you see me, I will be what? Maybe remember? Seated at the right hand of God. Yes, sir. He just moved right back into their face. Yes, he did. He, he absolutely did. But it's interesting because Stephen changes it here, doesn't he? What's the big change from 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 Jesus' statement? 
He said to these, these group of rebellious people, next time you see me, I will be seated at the right hand of God. Here he says what? Standing. It's an interesting change that Stephen makes. Why did he change that? Obviously the Spirit has changed it. Why did he change it from seat and stand? Does he just go to quality? No. He's standing in this text with a picture of welcoming. Yeah. Seated is judgment. Welcoming Stephen. Welcoming him. So he said to, and Stephen in this statement is, is distancing himself from this throng, this crowd of people who are enraged and, and grinding their teeth at him and about to kill him because they were the ones that heard Jesus say, the next time you see me, I will be seated. And Stephen is looking at a standing Jesus next to the Father. Why? Because Jesus is welcoming Stephen. Whereas for these people, the alternative is reality. For these people, the enraged people, they are going to see Jesus as judge. So it's interesting because these leaders of Israel are hearing Stephen say, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they're reminded immediately of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel, I'm sorry, and Psalm 110, the significant prophecies with regard to Jesus. With regard, I'm sorry, to the Messiah. And of course, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and was. And then they're reminded of just a few weeks before Jesus telling them that the next time you see me, I'll be seated. And in, in the scriptures, in discussion of Psalm 110, it makes it very clear. He's talking about judgment. And Stephen doesn't get a seat in Jesus. He gets a stand in Jesus. And that's the difference between the, the council and the ones who were incited. And could I submit to you? Those are the church. Hellenized Jews. In Stephen's description here are going to receive a standing Jesus or a seated Jesus. Those even of the church are going to receive a seated Jesus. It's a horrifying statement that he just made to those who are rebellious, to those who are enraged, to those who are gnashing their teeth, who are grinding their teeth in anger. All that's left for them is a seated Jesus. <clears throat> but for Stephen, a standing Jesus. Is it any wonder? Being enraged, is it any wonder that verse 57 comes around right after that? But they cried out with a loud voice and did what? What did they do? They stopped their ears. I mean, that almost sounds childish, doesn't it? But it's real. That's right. I mean, if you don't believe that, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't understand that description, can I just submit something to you? If you don't understand that description, you've not been evangelizing. Can I be blunt like that? 
If you don't understand that, if you don't understand the hatred and vitriol of what's being described here, then you're not evangelizing. You're not. Because whenever people come in contact with Jesus, what happens? There's reaction. There's going to be a response. There's going to be. So if you look at this statement, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him, that doesn't make any sense to you? If you've never observed that? I'm just telling you. If you haven't observed that and don't observe that regularly, you're not involved. You're not involved in evangelism because this is what happens. Yes? They don't necessarily hold their ears now, but they don't hear. Well, yeah, but, they, but they're not just going away like, well, that's, that's good for you. That's not what happens. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They, 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 they re, they re, it's a rejection. It's an active rejection. Now, again, there's a whole variety of how that's presented, but the point is, if this doesn't make any sense, or if you've not observed this regularly, you're not involved. Because this is how it happens. And you can't miss it. We're got, we've got, what, we're at chapter 7, we've got, what, 21 more chapters to go? If you've been reading forward, you know it happens. Don't you? You know it happens. Like, all the time. And by the way... If you read past the book of Acts, chapter 28, into, into Romans and following, what do you discover? It happens regularly, doesn't it? You bet it does. It's the regular occurrence. And by the way, if you get past Act, uh, Revelation chapter 22 and start reading church history, guess what you discover? It happens. It happens. It happens regularly. <clears throat> You know, it's, it's interesting. We, we kind of almost idolize uh, those seven that were killed by the Auk Indians, <laughs> don't we? That's, that's supposed to be regular. You realize that? That's supposed to be common. <coughs> now, maybe not killing all the time, but the hatred, Jesus said what? They hated me, the me so of course they're going to hate you. Hate you. It sounds to me like it's supposed to be kind of common. What it sounds like. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Absolutely. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed as, the idea is they rushed as one person at him who was like almost they were being moved. By something outside them. That's what it almost sounds like, doesn't it? The mob all at once just all rushed him and did what? Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, can I just say this real quick about verse 58, what we just read? Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. You know what they're doing? They're following the Old Testament law. That's what they're doing. They're following the Old Testament law. Yeah. They accused Stephen, did they not? Remember the accusations about the temple and about Moses and the law? And what he's basically shown is that they weren't wrong on the accusations. It's just they missed the one major part of the accusation. That was what? That Jesus came to fulfill it all. 
Right? Absolutely. He came to fulfill it all. So they're fulfilling the Old Testament law that says what? You take him out of the city and stone him. And so that's exactly what they do. But what's interesting is what comes next. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man, Saul. And what's interesting is not Saul there. Saul is merely an introduction. What's interesting, and the witnesses, by law, who's supposed to throw the first stones? The witnesses. In this case, who were the witnesses? The accusers, but who are the accusers? The Hellenized Jews. The Hellenized Jews. If you follow through from 6 all the way through, the witnesses, not the ones that came firstly and, and because they were incited, they're secondhand, right? They didn't observe that the Hellenized Jews incited these people to go and tell. So the witnesses are the Hellenized Jews, the people who are part of the church, are now doing what? Throwing the first stones. They are laying down their garments at Saul's feet and throwing the first stones. Wow. Wow. Boy, that escalated fast, didn't it? Yes. Good, good question. They take it, the garments is the outer garments, and it, it, they would take off the outer garments so they could just pull back and throw real easy. They wouldn't snag them. They'd take off their garments so they could be whenever they're doing hard work, hard physical labor. They take the garments off so they could go and, and throw it. And so they laid them in Saul's feet just so he could keep track of them, keep them out of the way. No, no, it's just to keep them, keep them out of the way, and uh, that way they could grab because they're running back and forth grabbing more stones. It's not. They don't have pre-organized. This is not a planned thing. So they don't have planned piles. Nobody went out ahead of time and piled stones up and planned. So there are stones everywhere in Israel. Don't get running there. But they're running back and forth, grabbing more stones, putting them up, throwing them back. So they put them all in one spot, keep them out of the way, so people are tripping over their clothes. That's what it is. But the Hellenized Jews seemingly are the ones that are throwing the first stones. Boy, that escalated fast. And boy, did that go south fast. Here are people that are out of the church. Are doing what? Killing the first martyr of Christ in the New Testament. Interesting how that works out. And of course, as I already said, there's Saul as being introduced, who eventually will become Paul. It's appropriate that we see him mentioned here. We'll pick up on that starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. Jumping down into verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he calls out and curses the people who are throwing stones. Is that what you see? No. And as they were stoning Stephen, he calls out what? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Same thing Jesus said. Same thing Jesus said on the cross. Can I just submit to you? Firstly, that the people who were throwing stones at Stephen were could, many of them probably would have been at the at the at the cross, and they would have heard Jesus say the exact same thing. I think that would have enraged them a little bit more. But secondly, I would submit to you 
And when Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know what? I mean, that's a really wild statement, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you put yourself in Stephen's shoes? Wouldn't you just be spending your time ducking and trying to hide and cut and cover and trying to protect yourself? Wouldn't that be the natural way? But his only response is, I know I'm going to die, so Jesus receive my spirit. Can I just submit to you in this most dire of circumstances, in this most dire of difficulties, and you know as well as I do, you can't think of a more horrific difficulty to be in this, right? And that would hurt, wouldn't it? And the process of dying, stoning is an ugly death. It's not easy. Not quick. As a matter of fact, most people who stone historically, most people who, not were stoned, but most people who did the stoning, they wanted to last as long as possible, so they'd throw smaller stones versus bigger ones. For the most suffering. And that's what it always was. Even as to this day in the Middle East, they don't just start dropping big boulders on their heads. They throw small things, they want them to suffer. They're angry at them. The picture we have of Stephen, post Christ's resurrection, really in a very real way, is a picture of a redeemed person. This is what a redeemed person looks like. It's, it's what a redeemed per, how a, per, a redeemed person responds to persecution. His focus is where? His own preservation? His own security, his own health, his own safety, his own comfort, his own ease. No, where's his focus? Being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. That's where his focus is. Amazing picture. Someone who is full of the Holy Spirit. His focus, his emphasis, his longing, his desire. It's clearly a good Jesus. Verse 60, then he falls on his knees. And can I just submit to you, he's falling on his knees not because he's bowing down to pray. It's because he's being pummeled. He's being knocked down. He falls to his knees and cries out with a loud voice. Again, quoting Jesus, right? And, by the way, quoting the Old Testament. Lord, do not hold this sin not quoting, but paraphrasing. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Interesting statement that Stephen makes. And here's why the second statement is really, really interesting. Because the statement that Jesus made, right? Remember? He's on the cross. And he cries out to the Father. He says, do not hold this against them, right? Father, forgive them for what? They don't know what they're doing, right? Does that mean, we talked about this before, but just, just by follow-up or by, by repetition or reminder, does that mean at that point in time they were forgiven? The answer is no. They were not forgiven when Jesus cried that out. That was a prayer to his heavenly Father. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But in the crucifixion scene, when Jesus cried that out, he then died shortly thereafter, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. Correct? And then 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. Correct? 
And Jesus promised, right before he ascended into heaven, he promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come upon them with power, and they would be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. And then the Spirit came upon them with power, Acts chapter 2, and they got up and they preached Christ and Him crucified. Did they not? They preached the gospel and what happened? 3,000 people got saved. <coughs> Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. And 40 some days later, Jesus' prayer is fulfilled and they cry out in You know what's horrifying about this? Five chapters later, Stephen is being stoned and he cries out in, his, in this prayer as he's being pummeled to death. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you know what's different about this time? There's no conversion. There's no conversion. There's no response to that prayer. In the affirmative. Quite to the contrary, according to the scriptures, what happens from here on out? Persecution just gets worse and worse and worse. And the church is driven out of Jerusalem and is spread out all over Asia Minor. And then the persecution gets worse and worse and worse, all the way to 315 AD. Unlike Jesus' prayer, the horrifying part about this prayer <coughs> is it doesn't get answered in the affirmative. <coughs> At least not in evidence in the scriptures. Quite the contrary, it goes unanswered. Except for Saul. Except for Saul, which we will find in a later chapter, chapter 9. In fact, I would submit to you that Stephen's prayer was only effective for Saul. It is stunning to see, especially when you, when you fold in these people of the church who are stoning Stephen first. There is no evidence that these people who rebelled against the truth of the gospel ever repented. Which kind of sounds a lot like Hebrews, doesn't it? Doesn't it? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, Hebrews chapter 6. Watch out today while it's still today, lest you get a cold or hard heart. Stunning to see how quick it happened, isn't it? Stunning to see how quickly it happened. To the point that they're stoning the deacon of the church, who's full of the Holy Spirit. Ah, but someone who is not part of the church, quite to the contrary, Saul, the Lord moves mightily as he is redeemed. Powerfully redeemed. In answering Stephen's prayer. The Father answering Stephen's prayer. 
And then the passage concludes right after that by saying, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's an interesting statement. <clears throat> and we don't spend a lot of time on this, but it is interesting. Concluding the story, and then he fell asleep. Sure. Interesting way to put it, isn't it? He died. It is a euphemism. But I think it's more than just a euphemism, though, Tom. It's a very peaceful euphemism for such a violent death. Yes, it is stunningly peaceful for such a violent death. Isn't it? But the picture is not one of... By the way, if I say it, I'm not talking about soul sleep. Soul sleep. just wanted to clarify that. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. Not soul sleep. But his body ceased to function. But he went to glory. He went to glory. Jesus standing waiting for him. And the scriptures tell us that he will be resurrected. His body will be resurrected, correct? A new glorified body, he will be resurrected. He's asleep. Physically. Physical. Oh, but he spiritually is not. He was with his Redeemer who stood waiting for him. Anticipating his arrival. And that's the same Savior for you and I, for believers. You realize that? This passage is so encouraging. The next time, can I just say this? The next time we're intimidated by an unsaved person, the next time we fear Stephen. Right? And when we say Stephen, we're not talking about Stephen, right? Holy Spirit working in Stephen. Next time we're like, ah, I don't know if I should say it. Stephen. Holy Spirit worship. Holy Spirit with power. Next time we fear, what's waiting at the end if we're believers? What's waiting at the end? Christ. Standing to receive his own. What is there to fear? Can I just ask a real simple question? What is there to fear? What can man do to you? What's the worst that man can do to you? Make you see the Redeemer earlier. Yes! Just usher you into the Redeemer's presence. That's the worst that the unsaved world can do to you. You can't even do that apart from God's. Even that is by God's plan. <clears throat> it's a stunning perspective we have here in the story, in the conclusion of the story with Stephen. The boldness we see, as Tom said right in the beginning, is Holy Spirit power boldness. Not because Stephen was such a great hero in the story. It's because he's full of the Spirit. With power. This is what happens. And for, for Stephen, what fear did he have? If God is who says he is, and if Christ accomplished what he said he accomplished, what do we have to fear? <coughs> right? What do we have to fear? <coughs> My goodness, what does the world have to offer us? That's why we fear. We fear what we may lose with regard to what the world has, right? What does the world offer us? In comparison and contrast to the Redeemer. <coughs> My goodness. It's a beautiful study in contrast here. But the, the horrifying part of the contrast, the horrifying part, is a crying out for all the wrong reasons. We're either people who are crying out to God, or we are people who, by default, are 
crying out against me. And I would present to you, as I said before, just like we see here, I would present to you that that in the, today's church, um, just like every other day, other every other age, there's a whole lot of people in the church who, given the opportunity, would do the exact same thing the Hellenized Jews did, and are doing that. Maybe not that extreme, but are doing that. And when we stand up for Christ, you know what? They will do that for us, to us. And our response is to, as Stephen did, do what? Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter, <coughs> who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Amen? So that, Hebrews 12, so that we do not what? Lose heart. It's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. So, friends, as we go from here after singing this morning, let us fix our eyes on Jesus so that we do not lose heart. This world has nothing to offer us. Safety and health and security and wealth and fame and all the rest have nothing to offer you. We see what the final conclusion of all that is, don't we? Being angered, enraged, and grinding teeth. And by the way, I didn't say this. I'll just throw this out and I'll close. It is interesting that the text describes, that Luke describes that their teeth, something about their teeth, right? What did he say again? They were enraged and ground their teeth. Did that catch your attention at all? When I said that, I didn't talk about it much. There's another place in Scripture that talks about that, doesn't it? No. Yes. <coughs> in hell, they were doing the same exact thing. <coughs> they will be enraged, clenching, and grinding, and gnashing of teeth for eternity. Oh, what a joy it is to know Jesus. Oh, what a joy it is to know that we don't face that final judgment. condemnation, second death. Amen? Amen. What a blessing. But that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know, left to our own devices, we will be people who will become enraged and grind our teeth. Lord, we ask that your spirit will work mightily in us. That your spirit will bring Holy Spirit boldness. So that the love that we have for you will be such a love that the love of Christ will control us. And because we know the fear of the Lord, we will persuade men. Change our hearts. Because they are the only two contrasts. And so, Lord, glorify yourself in us, personally and corporately. In your name I pray. Amen.